This is the Beyond Mission podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Alcesser. And this year we're exploring the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament in what we're calling a chronogeobiological flow. That is, we're following the chronology of the book of Acts and then veering off from time to time to the places, people, and topics addressed in Acts. Last week, we had a conversation with my friend Jim Ballinger about the book of 1 John in particular on the topic of love one another. But today, Ben, I'm back with Ben, my partner in ministry here, Ben Greenbaum, as we return to the book of Acts and pick it up in the latter part of Acts chapter 4, mainly in Acts chapter 5 today, in this case study in honesty. So, Ben, welcome welcome back. It's uh, good to have you here again, brother. And I know Ash Wednesday's coming up in the life of the Christian church. What's Ash Wednesday mean to you? I love the Ash Wednesday service. Part of it is, is the, the opportunity and time given, I think, intentionally to, refe- to reflect and to enter into a, a, a time of repentance. Um, just kind of sets the tone for the Lenten season uh, for me and, and marking the, the beginning of the Lenten season. But really a push toward uh, repentance, a push toward I think further yielding uh, to the Holy Spirit and the intentionality that surrounds the service, that it's directed toward that specifically, um, and also focusing on the fullness, the totality of the gospel itself, that faith in Christ calls us to a life of repentance in the presence of our sin. Growing up in South Louisiana, was there a, a sense, because you grew up also as a non-Christian, but you were in this culture that really makes kind of a bigger deal about the the preparation for, I don't know that it's necessarily the Lenten season, but there's some festivities and things that go on that, at least as I understand it, did you have an awareness like of all that kind of stuff? And, uh, you know, we, we have stereotypes, we Northerners, about what, what goes on with a Fat Tuesday or whatever you call those things down there. So how does it, How does this thing all play out in your mind as a kid growing up? Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I didn't pay much attention uh, to Ash Wednesday or have, uh, I guess, a uh, a full concept or understanding of, of the purpose of it. Just knew there was a lot of people uh, in our area uh, walking around with, with ashes on their forehead. Um, we have a, a large Catholic, Roman Catholic population in New Orleans um, who were given, obviously, to Ash Wednesday services. And, uh, and so as a part of that, preceding Ash Wednesday, there is Fat Tuesday or what we call Mardi Gras. And the idea, in essence, behind it, though most people actually locally don't live into it, um, it's more the tourists that that live into it. But the idea of you know eating a lot, um, a lot of self gratifying uh, type behavior, and uh, and then pre Ash Wednesday, and then rolling into Ash Wednesday with a repentant heart. Now, my experience with Mardi Gras growing up, while you know, the debauchery and, and the drunkenness and all of that does exist, uh, during Mardi Gras, a lot of that actually does not happen with the locals. Not to say that there aren't some locals given to that, but for me, it was just a time to, to be with family and, and to have fun. And, uh, that's kind of the way I always, I saw Mardi Gras through, through that lens. That's um, slightly disappointing to me to hear that it's kind of a tourist trap. 
or <laughs> I'm not sure what it is, but it's a, uh, I, I, I didn't really understand that until you've talked about it. Yeah, I mean, it's not what I would qualify, I guess, as a tourist trap as we've gotten far afield now. It's not really a, a tourist trap, though tourists are uh, inevitably trapped by it, um, especially a lot of college-age tourists that head down uh, to Mardi Gras. Um, but yeah, I mean, for us, as growing up, again, growing up as kids, like going to parades with my grandparents and with my parents and with aunts and uncles and cousins, it's just a good, just a good time. Well, today's topic is not really about that per se, but it is about how we live our lives. And there are these case studies that are lifted up in the book of Acts at the end of chapter four and then beginning of chapter five that really take a a look at how we, how we live our lives publicly and privately and does that matter? So I don't, I don't know if that has really anything to do with it, but it was just more of a curious question, and I'm making my best effort to segue into it somehow. So let's take a let's take a look at this in Acts chapter four, and I want to actually back up just a little bit in before the whole case study to what had been taking place. That in Acts four, the, Peter and John were arrested and threatened and warned not to speak in the name of Jesus. They were they were threatened that if they kept doing this, it would be bad for them. And in Acts 4, 29 to 30, they pray. They and the other followers of Christ pray and say, Now, Lord, consider their threats, that is, the people who want, are threatening to take our lives or imprison us or to flog us. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's a bold prayer. We've talked about that a bit. The immediate result was in verse 31, Acts 4.31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That was an immediate result, but there were some also some long-range results, behavior changes in verse 32 and following, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And it goes on from there and says that there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. It's, it's one thing, Ben, to be in a in a setting where there's revival going on, where they're, they're, the, where God is moving, the Holy Spirit is moving, and and people are are speaking the word boldly, and all this ministry is going on. It's another thing to say, I'm going to fork over my money, my possessions, and yet this was there was some heartfelt change happening in people's lives to the point where they weren't just having a an emotional or a spiritual encounter with, with God, they were having a practical, life-changing encounter to the point where they were selling property they didn't necessarily need, I suppose. It maybe it was excess property. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but they were selling some land and, and, and valuables and giving the proceeds to the apostles so that the poor could be taken care of. This was... Um, this was alter, a life-altering experience for them, and really, 
it set Christianity in the place of being somebody that cares for the poor. Yeah, that was one of the big uh, frustrations even among uh, later uh, Roman emperors into the fir- late first century and the second century, third century. One of their big frustrations was or in, was that the Christians, or they said as the Galileans, called them the Galileans, um, gave not only to their own poor, but as the Roman emperor Julian said, to, uh, to, to ours as well. And so you see this just absolute uh, sacrificial heart born of this relationship with Jesus Christ, and they are caring for one another. No one is going without within the body of Christ. And then you see uh, that sacrificial love uh, spilling out, in in essence, beyond the walls of the church as they're caring for the poor uh, in their communities as well. So so this thing was voluntary. It says from time to time it was done. It seemed to be, it it wasn't mandatory. It, It wasn't coerced out of them. They could, if they chose, to have their bap- the baptism of their wallet as well as of their bodies, of their hearts. And, and many of them did that. And so the, the Bible lifts up a case study. It's the end of Acts 4. It's the beginning of Acts 5. I don't know why the stories weren't put together when they made the chapter divisions, but I wasn't in charge of that, and I would have probably done so, and it would have probably been more messy. But nonetheless, at the end of chapter 4 is Exhibit A, the man we know as Barnabas. His actual name is Joseph, and it says in chapter 4, verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, so he got the nickname, the son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas becomes a central figure throughout the book of Acts and and does all kinds of stuff with making sure that Paul is taken care of and including Paul in ministry later and then traveling with with Paul as the missionary journeys begin that define the book of Acts. But I don't know if this is the beginning point of it. He was he was a Levite, which is part of the Jewish faith, and he had recognized Jesus as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of that. So you might say he converted to Christianity to a degree. And he was so shaken and moved by all of this that he took some of his land and brought the money and gave it to the apostles, and the apostles could then distribute it to the poor. And that becomes a theme here early on. Like, what are we going to do with the poor around us as that you've mentioned? And we see that played out uh, from time to time as they're looking for ways they can take care of one another. Uh, so Barnabas got it, but the next two people didn't. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. And part of it is, as, as we jump into Ananias and Sapphira, it's the, uh, it's the want they have, honestly, to make much of themselves, really. Their own pride infects their uh, generosity, and... They, in essence, I mean, as we'll see, they they lie to the body of Christ um, for the sake of looking good. It's, I suppose, an age-old temptation to want to be somebody, to, to look good. I know that as a pastor, I have faced and sometimes failed and sometimes prevailed when that temptation comes my way. 
uh, when folks recognize me, here's my filter, my ears, my filter, as the best, as the top, as as something else, when in reality it's all by the grace of God and all for the glory of God. But in real time, that feels different when somebody says, hey, you're, you're doing a great job, you're leading the church, you're you're a very spiritual person, and thank you for for all this ministry you do, and it, and it can it can kind of go to the head. I don't know if that's what's happening in the life of Ananias and Sapphira, but it can be a bit of a trap, not just for pastors, but for anybody who is a follower of Christ, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. And then we have this sense sometimes. I think that you know, I mean, in essence, they're trying to hide their sinful action, their sinful behavior, and and really think that they pulled one over on the congregation uh, as a whole. And uh, and beyond that, the, the thing, the aspect of this is that probably in their own minds, they reconciled it with the fact that they had, again, as we read the text here in a second, but they probably reconciled in their own mind that, hey, we, we sold off this piece of land. We gave generously. And so who cares if we keep a little back for ourselves, God doesn't care. And it, and it wasn't real. I mean, as again, as we read the text here in a second, it wasn't so much that they didn't give it all. It's that they lied to the body of Christ, ultimately lying to God um, in, in the process. Yeah, they pretended to give it all. Right. Which was an affront. So let's take a look at the story. It's in Acts chapter 5, and right at the beginning, verse 1, in contrast to Barnabas, who did this? It goes on the very next verse. You know, when the Bibles were actually written down originally, there weren't these chapter and verse designations. So this story just flows together. So Barnabas did this, and the next thing it says in chapter five: Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Things look the same. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You could have done anything you wanted, right? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, which you had, but to God. It's, it's quite a, a statement. There's something in this that, that I'm just curious about. Peter knows. I don't know if he had scouts out that were part of the transaction and knew how much money he got for the, the piece of property, or if it, this was just the Holy Spirit working in. Peter's life, that he knew what what was up. And at that moment, I mean, Ananias had to be shaking. Yeah, I'm sure. Not the, for long, as we see, but he had to be, he had to be shaking. <laughs> I mean, the very next verse, it says, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Right. Um, so <laughs> so um, there's a lot going on here. Like, what do, you, what do you see happening between this exchange between Peter and and how he got the information, we don't know. But and then Ananias and all this is taking and this the the bold declaration because typically, 
like as a as a pastor or as a leader, if somebody makes a nice, healthy donation to our church, I don't typically look at them and say, "Well, where's the rest?" <laughs> so there's a, there's some stuff going on here, uh, right? Yeah, Peter knew that there was a yeah that that clearly they had not whatever it was that they sold the property for they hadn't given it all um back to the the community of faith and i i have to imagine that when peter confronts ananias you know you can see the blood uh draining from his face uh as he realizes that he's been found out and this is one of those moments where there's a, a general tendency that that we sometimes we we it's odd to me. We have this. We have this sense, and we all wrestle with it. We have this sense that our uh, that in the presence of sin, in the presence of deception, it's almost as like we don't even consider the reality that God knows, um, and God does. And to that end, our sins will ultimately find us out, one way or another. And it's never failed. And you know, twenty years of ministry. Uh, encountering that time and time again in, in the lives of folks who believe that their deception um, will, will ultimately be, be covered over, whether for the course of their life or, or whatever it might be, and, uh, and watching and seeing as, these, uh, as in, is ultimately these things become exposed. Well, and, his sins found him out the hard way. He, yeah. he, he uh, conked off right there. I mean, he, just, he crashed to the ground and he was dead before he hit the ground, it sounds like. And the, ne- the next part of uh, verse 5 says, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened, you think? I mean, it's like, okay, this is risky business being part of the faith community because we've, we have to be very transparent before God. We have to be very honest with all we do before God. Great fear seized all who heard what, was, what had happened. And then just uh, verse six, I love it, just like a, a bina. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. So much for that. So much for the funeral. No eulogy. Uh, <laughs> you know, no no uh, trumpets that were blowing. No twenty one gun salute or anything like that. They just dug a hole. Right. And <laughs> yeah, well, I'm curious. Like, did his wife even know at this point that he had died, and they had like chunked him in the ground? Because um, when she shows up, you know, it says in verse seven, about three hours later, his wife came in. You know, was she even privy uh, to any of that? Yeah, I mean, it says not knowing what had happened. So I, I right. guess she was completely lost. Um, she was probably out at Walmart or something. I, I don't know what she was doing, but she she was completely out of the loop of all of this. And then Peter, you know, Peter doesn't just tell her, hey, by the way, this happened to your husband. He lied. Do you have anything you want to say? He puts her in the spot and asks her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? She had, a, she had this opportunity to come clean, but she probably thinks, I mean, I don't know what she's thinking. Like, if I tell the truth, it's going to look bad for my husband, who she probably still thinks is alive. So she joins in the conspiracy. Yes. That's the price. Verse 9, Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband, first time she hears about it, are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, 
she fell down at his feet and died. The guys came in and took her out and buried her next to her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. We don't, we don't really hear these kinds of stories these days, at least not in my ministry context. Ben. I, I, I don't really hear them where people can. It, it seems like a lot of times we, if people are half in to the faith, we're grateful they're at least half in and not, not all in. The story here I mean, that took place, this episode that took place, it's about lying to God, about putting yourself forward as more than you really are. It also seems to be about being all in, that coming to Christ and giving your life to him is not a partial, just dangle my toe in the water decision. It's a deep plunge. I don't want to make more of the story than what the text tells us, because that's the main thing we should always do, is what, what does the Scripture say? And on its surface, it re- I think it, it probably in, in the depth, it probably really is about being honest with who you are and being honest with who God is, not, not putting yourself forward. But in, in those ways, I mean, it, what's the challenge for the, the modern Christian as you, as you read through this story? I think the challenge ultimately is faithfulness. Um, you know that as followers of Christ, we're we're truly and in, in increasingly seeking to pick up our cross, follow after Jesus, to deny ourselves, yield ourselves fully to Him, to His Lordship. Um, and I think that that's really the the, the challenge of of the passage, and uh, and also you know recognizing and and seeing that that God is ever present uh, with us. He's ever present with the, the community of faith uh, as a whole. And in removing Ananias and Sapphira in this moment, he's, you know, exercising, uh, in essence, his own form of church discipline um, and preserving the community and helping to nurture the community and to keep them uh, pressing toward the, the mission and vision that Jesus has given them to go and to make uh, disciples as he removes Ananias and Sapphira from the community of faith. And, you know, the, the chapter doesn't say anything of Ananias and Sapphira relative to their actual faith in Christ. Their faith might have been completely, in essence, legitimate. Mm. Um, and, and not to dispute that, I don't know their hearts. I can't begin to, to judge that. But we see this act of rebellion um, before the church itself before God himself, and we see God, um, we see God's hand of, of discipline uh, exercised uh, upon them. And, uh, and I'm sure in ministry and, and throughout uh, moments of life, we, you know, we encounter these moments, and I'll never presume upon the will of God, but I will tell you in 20 years of ministry, um, you know, sin has a way of nurturing and creating uh, brokenness and dysfunction in, in our own lives. There is a penalty to be born in that. And, uh, and we also see God's intervening hand a lot of times in those moments and the discipline that he exercises uh, upon us as his children um, and nurturing us near to himself. And so there are going to be those moments when we face uh, aspects of discipline that result uh, from, from sin. 
And it is, as, as I read the, the story, it's just this ever-present reminder to me that God is ever-present with us. As Lisa and I are raising our, our teen, Abraham, he's, he's a junior in high school, I think one of the most important things for us, and I, I speak for myself, for, for me, is that Abraham lives a life of authenticity and that he pursues God as with his life, the same at church, the same at youth group, the same at ret- on retreats and, and mission trips and all these things, as he does at school, with his friends, on his lacrosse team, like whatever, whatever it is. That, and, I, and I think that's the call for all of us, right? Like is to say, to be honest before God and, and be the same person, the same kind of drive and desire to to honor and please and be real before God, no matter what the arena is that we're operating out of, what the, what the audience is, the influence around us is that we become that person. And I'm, I'm sure that's the same as, as you, as you're raising your girls, is, is to be like, because in, in the end, you know, in, I don't know, fast forward 20 years, uh, your your daughters will be like our four daughters who are now all adults in their late late teens, twenty nine to age thirty thirty five. But Abraham and and your girls, ten twenty years from now, will be living their lives, and what they do as a career will be valuable. But it's not the most important thing. That's it's my view of it. Like what matters is. Are you authentic in the way you pursue God? You with me on that? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, for them, for my kids, for myself as well, and and a lot of times it is. I I think it's being honest with our own, our our the the sin that we, that we wrestle with ourselves. Being honest with that before God, um, living a life of repentance, a life of repentance that isn't in, in essence. Um, that that is drawn out of God's redemptive love toward us, that having been redeemed by the work of Christ, seeking to be honest before God, because my desire is not to, in essence, d- be deceptive about my sin, but to bring the the darkness of my sin into the light of God's redeeming love that my heart and my mind and my life can be changed and transformed for the sake of his glory. That's what I want for myself. That's what I want uh, for my girls, that's what I want for the for the body of Christ, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Part of the and, and that's part of the the desire and design behind the church itself that we're supposed to be a sanctifying community. And so, in that, we want to uh, live a life in community of vulnerability, where when confronted by our sin, you know, for myself, finding those brothers in Christ that I can be open and honest with, that I can confess my sin to for the sake of uh, my life growing in the likeness of, of Jesus Christ. And that's where, you know, with Ananias and Sapphira, there is this, this lack, because of their deceptiveness, there's a lack of vulnerability. They have no desire whatsoever to expose their sin uh, to the 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 body of Christ itself. Um, and so even as Peter offers Sapphira really an opportunity to repent, she continues to be deceptive. She continues to lie. And, uh, and so, yeah, 
I want this life of authenticity. I want this life of integrity, of honesty, that when confronted with my own sin, that there is a humility that says, I must bring this into the light because I want my life to bear witness to Jesus Christ, to his redemptive work in my life. Um, and I want, and again, I, I want to be, I want to, to live into the new creation that Jesus has made me to be. Mm. That's well said. Next time we're going to take a look at a person who's very different from Ananias and Sapphira. His name's Stephen, and he was a man with integrity and honesty and, and much, much more in his life. We'll continue as we press further into the narrative in the book of Acts, as we'll look at Acts chapter 6 and 7 next time. Friends, if you'd like to jump in deeper, you can go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or click on the Be On Mission link. That will take you to more elements in this year-long study that we're calling the Be On Mission year, or it's like the mission of Jesus being lived out in our lives. And that, that includes daily Bible readings and devotions and poems, as well as the weekly sermons and group studies and other episodes of this podcast. Like, it's all there and you can pick the parts that you want to go deeper in your life. And if you want to stay up to date with the Beyond Mission podcasts, we encourage you to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, may God bless. Mm-hmm.